we've been in a series that we've entitled Hypocrite. And we've been looking at God's judgment of not uh, the flagrant sinners, the gross immorality of Romans 1, but the clean, if you will, sinners, the self-righteous sinners of Romans chapter 2. And we look at their lives and, and the hypocrisy that they have as they look at others and say, well, I'm glad, God, that I'm not like them. I'm glad that I'm not condemned like those sinners. And yet Paul articulates to us today, as he has throughout this series, that they too are condemned. No matter how clean they are on the outside, no matter what religion or what rituals they contain in their lives, they have no superiority, but they are just like the sinners in Romans 1, condemned and on their way to hell. Now, in the last part of our series this week, we look at the last uh, four verses of Romans chapter 2. And one commentary says this is the last retreat for the Jewish moralist. What it's talking about is Paul has been breaking down like a prosecuting attorney the reason why the moral sinner is still a sinner. And he brings it to a full um, place when he talks about the Jewish individual the covenant people of God, those that felt that they had a right relationship with God. In fact, in uh, verse 17, I'll start as we uh, look to our scripture this morning, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. We'll look through 17 to the end of the chapter. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word. This is what the text says. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you... People should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Our text for the morning. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Uh, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And a circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And as has already been prayed, Lord, we lift up your word this morning. We elevate it to its place of prominence in our lives. We thank you for it. And Lord, we come to a difficult passage of Scripture this morning, a passage that has many uh, cultural and uh, nationalistic uh, undertones, 
a text that uh, uh, maybe at face value doesn't seem to affect us here in uh, the West, uh, in America, in our evangelical thinking uh, in the year 2009. But Lord, much is to be gleaned from this passage today. Much is to be taken away. For Lord, we need a circumcision of the heart. We need a removal of, of the old and a reminder of the covenant that you have with your people. So Lord, I pray that today would be a new day for some in our midst. For some who have pursued religion and ritual, who have pursued uh, the pursuit of their own religion and their own making of who you are in their pursuit of you, that they would lay that down and know that it is only by your spirit, it is only by your grace, it is only by your mercy and the blood of the cross of Calvary shed by Jesus Christ that we can be saved. This is the religion that is good. This is the religion that is true. This is a religion that changes lives. So, Father, let us push away anything that keeps us from that type of faith, that keeps us from that type of relationship, and that we would never, oh, Lord, we would never find ourselves elevating something above you. So, Lord, we ask that you would go before us. Open our ears so we can hear you. Open our eyes so that we can see you, so that in the end we will be changed and bring glory to you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. What is your source of security this morning? What is it when all is going bad or you find yourself incredibly fearful? What do you find yourself running to? Maybe six months ago, it may have been our 401ks. If all else fails, at least I have that money in that account that will keep me secure. But what about in the area of life? For some of you, you uh, take the Second Amendment right and you say, I want to feel secure. And if anybody comes into my house, I reserve the right to put away any unwanted visitors. A sense of security. There's nothing wrong with that. We have a sense of security when it comes to um, our deepest fears. On Monday nights, I usually come home late after an elder meeting, and I will always turn the corner where I can see the back of our house, and I will notice every light is on. And I will know one thing is wrong. Amanda heard something. And in some way, having all the lights on is going to scare away whatever that big, bad, mean man at the door may want to do. He runs away because all the lights are on. But the thing I think about the most is uh, now raising uh, three boys. My two oldest ones, uh, have, as they've grown up, one has grown out of it more than the other. They have a security, if you will, when it comes to their fears and it's a teddy bear. As a little baby, they were given these little uh, teddy bears. And uh, the thing that I've been amazed with is they will not go to bed 
without him. Now, our six-year-old is, is uh, excited now to be able to say that he doesn't need that anymore, but he's glad to know that the three-year-old still has his. And yet, I began to think about that, and it's amazing. We lay the kids down, and, uh, and they'll say, but dad, what about the bear? Go get the bear. Go find the bear. And if we don't know where that bear's at, we ain't getting anybody down to bed. We can't do anything without the bear. Why? Because it's their sense of security. Now, I'll ask them, what in the world do you think is going to happen to you? You're in your home. You're in your bedroom. I'm in the house. What are you afraid of? Well, Daddy, the boogeyman. Now, I don't know where we get this idea of the boogeyman, but, but they're scared. They want security. Now, I tried to have a conversation with Noah one time when I was trying to wean him from this idea of a teddy bear. And I said, Noah, what will your teddy bear do if the boogeyman does show up? I don't know, Dad, but I'm glad he's there. You know, religion is a lot like that teddy bear. We find ourselves worried about our eternal destination, about our eternal destiny, and what we grab a hold of is something that gives us security, something that makes us feel safe. But just like that teddy bear that my boys hold in their arms and and hold so tightly and say, I won't go, I won't leave the home without it, we as a people grab a hold of religion, We grab a hold of ritual. We grab a hold of the things that we have done. And we grab them and we say, I can feel secure because I have this in my hands. But just like that teddy bear, religion, what will it do on the day of judgment? What will it do when you stand before Almighty God? When you stand before him and he says, why should I allow you into my heaven? What has paid for your sins? And you come and and you've got, if you will, this box of things that you've done, whether it's your church membership card and you say, well, I, well, God, I'm glad you asked. I went to village Bible church. I don't think God's going to care. He's going to say, well, that's great. That's wonderful but you didn't answer my question. What has saved you from your sins? Well, well, God, I'm glad you asked. I asked. I, I, I walked the aisle. I filled out a pledge card. I, I, I said the prayer. And God will say, did you deny yourself and take up the cross? Uh, no. But God, I've been baptized. I was even immersed. That should get me in right. God will say, give me chapter and verse. But Lord, you've got the giving role there, don't you? Don't you see what I gave? Those big checks, they wouldn't have had that big building had they not had me attending that church. That should get me there, right, Lord? The Lord will say, no. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus says, many on that day will come before God, that day meaning the judgment day, and they will say, Lord, Lord, and they'll bring their box and their religion and the things that they've done, and they will say, look at me, God, look at me, look at what I've done for you. 
Look at what I practiced. Look at the things that I did. I never missed communion. I never uh, missed giving to a missions project. Look at all that I've done. And Jesus says, many on that day will prophesy, will say that they have prophesied, that they've cast out demons, that they've done incredible things. And God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And just as if a boogeyman was to enter into my children's room, the little security blanket of your religion will be completely ineffective for the issue that is at hand. What does that have to do with our text today? At the end of Romans chapter 2, Paul moves the people, the moralist, Now, he's the best guy to do this because he himself was a moralist. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the one that would have gotten to heaven and would have told God how great and how clean he was. This is a man who would have known the first five books of the Bible by memory. He would have known that he would have had to follow more than two dozen different feasts and occasions to make sure that he could say to God, I'm a good Jewish follower. He would have had to have given uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of approximately 30% back to God of his money. And he did it. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3 that he did all these things and he was faultless in them. He was a legalist. He held to the law as tightly as anybody would. So if there was anybody who could communicate this to the moralist, to the one who thinks that they don't need any help to be saved, that they in themselves can contain uh, eternal life by what they've done or how they've lived, Paul says, I'm sorry, but you're in trouble because you too are condemned. And so what does Paul do? He backs them into a corner. And he backs them into the final corner of his argument. And it seems that the Jewish moralist is out for the count. But in our text, something is articulated. Look at verse 25. It tells us, what is the thing that the Jewish moralist is going to come with? What's their last thing? It's their knockout punch. They leave this to the last moment. And Paul deals with it. It's the ace that they pull from the deck. And so Paul says, you're condemned, moralist. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Jew. It doesn't matter if you rely on the law in verse 17. It doesn't matter if you think you've got this great relationship with God. Even though you think you're superior, even though you're convinced that uh, you can do all these incredible things because you have the embodiment of truth, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, you got none of that. Even if you did, it means nothing to God. But then the Jewish people must have risen up and said, but we have circumcision. We have circumcision. We've been circumcised. All of our men have been marked as a covenant people of God. We carry a mark that no one else can carry that tells us we are card-carrying members of the covenant people of God. That's going to make it all different. Paul, what do you have to say about that? Our bodies tell us 
that we have the right religion. It's our get-out-of-jail-free card. In fact, during this time, there were rabbis in Paul's day who articulated this sentiment. One rabbi in his commentary on the book of Moses said, No circumcised male will ever see hell. The Medrash Tillam tells us that God swore to Abraham that no circumcised male will ever be condemned. Another rabbi living during Paul's day said that Abraham sits at the gate of hell making sure no circumcised Jews enter in. It was it. We've got circumcision. We don't need anything else. What do you mean that we have to live upright and holy lives? We've got circumcision. Now in the West, we don't understand this fully. When we think about uh, this idea of circumcision, we think it's something uh, that is uh, not for us, but for the Jewish people. And some of that is true. To give us an understanding of some things, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Genesis for a moment. If you're in the book of Romans, go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Where does this come from? What is this all about? This idea of circumcision. I'm going to assume that uh, everyone in here, because there are younger ears still in our midst, that everyone would understand. If not, if you don't know what it is, come and talk with me and I'll sit you down and I'll tell you what it is. Some of you won't be so happy, especially the male folk in our midst. But I'm going to assume we all understand what circumcision is. And this is what God tells Abraham in Romans chapter 17, verses 9 through 12. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Here it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He he has broken my covenant. So what is he saying? You're my people. And because you're my people, I'm going to mark you. If you've ever been involved in agriculture, you know that a farmer will mark his livestock. And that livestock will carry either a tag in their ear that says, you are mine, or it will have some sort of branding that will take place. Now, why is that? The reason why is the owner wants everybody to know you are my people. But he also wants the individual, it's a little hard for livestock to understand this, but it's also a reminder if the livestock were able to look at that brand and say, I belong to someone else. I am not my own. You know, the New Testament talks about this, this idea of marking. 
The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given and he seals us. He marks us. He is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. God gives us that. The children of God here in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit that says, Tim is mine. And I can, because the Holy Spirit bears witness in my own life, I can go with full assurance and say, and the Father in heaven is mine. There's a marking. It was to set apart the people of God, this idea of circumcision, from all others. It would be a mark and a reminder that God has a covenant with them. As the text said, each boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. So that's what they would go and do. If you were to convert to Judaism in the Old Testament, and and you were uh, in your uh, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, whenever you came to uh, come to the Jewish faith, you were to be circumcised. That meant some serious commitment on the part of the individual who was converting. This was serious business. God says in the text in Genesis 17, you must do this. You shall do this. This wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't, hey, if you really want to be holy in in my kingdom, then this is what you do. This is extra credit. No, it was a requirement. And so that's why the Jews held it in such high regard. God told them to do it. It's no different than us doing what God articulates to us. We want to do what he has said. Now, this issue of circumcision isn't just an Old Testament thing. In fact, 36 times in the New Testament, circumcision is spoken of. So what are we to do with it? We need to understand a couple things. First of all, that circumcision wasn't just merely a physical act. It wasn't the cutting of just the foreskin, but it was more than that. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that circumcision in God's language was a mark of spirituality. Turn in your Bibles, if you're in the book of Genesis, to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're in Genesis, you're going to do Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Listen to what he says. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. Wait a minute. That's not the kind of circumcision that was being talked about in Genesis chapter 17. What are you talking about here, God? The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Wait a minute. That's, that's different, God. Let's look at another text. Uh, let's look to uh, Jeremiah 4.4. If you're in the book of Deuteronomy, this gets more difficult. You're going to go through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. First Chronicles, Second Chronicles is what's after that. Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Am I right? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then is it Isaiah? Isaiah, Jeremiah. I get a jewel at Awana on tonight. It's good to know where the books of the Bible are. If you don't know where they're at. Doesn't mean you're any more holy or unholy. Just means you can't find things as easily. Learn the books of the Bible. So now I've been flipping through. I'm halfway through the New Testament now. Okay. (laughs) Jeremiah 4. 
Jeremiah 4 4. That's what happens when you get, uh, you start talking and not looking. Jeremiah 4 4. This idea of circumcision is a spiritual one. Look at what it says, even in the Old Testament. This isn't a New Testament book. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. Well, maybe he's talking to Gentiles here. Who's he talking to, Jeremiah? You men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. He's speaking to Jews. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Circumcision, when God talks about it, is a thing of the heart, not just of a male's uh, private area. One more passage in the New Testament. If you go all the way, probably about 75% through the whole Bible, you'll find the small book of Colossians. If you were in Romans, after Romans is First and Second Corinthians. And then you've got, um, after that, uh, Galatians, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Man, I should have anticipated I was going to do all this, all this moving here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 through 13. Colossians 2, 9 through 13. Don't worry, we're going to get to our points. They're going to go fast. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised. Well, okay. What is that? In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision by Christ, having been buried in him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all of our sins. What are we to pull from this idea of circumcision? Yes, it was a physical mark of the Old Testament for the Jewish people. But it is greater than that because it has to do with the physical. Now, the problem in Romans chapter 2, let's get back to our uh, study of Romans 2. The moral Jews who had been circumcised, as even Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the way you do things. You don't do it on the seventh day. You don't do it on the ninth day. You do it on the eighth day. Paul says, I did it. And so did the Romans two people. They said, we've taken care of all of it. We've done all of that. And because we have this thing that we call circumcision, then we are right in the eyes of God. Now, what does that have to do with us today? The answer comes in Romans 2.25. In Romans 2.25, it says circumcision has value. Now, before I even get into what that idea of value is, in the original Greek, in verse 25, at the beginning, there is an absence of a preceding article that goes before the word circumcision. And what that suggests, Greek scholars say, is that as a result of this, this is an argument that is to be extended not just in the area, particular area of circumcision, but what the argument the Greek scholars say is that it can involve anything that we elevate to say we have a right relationship with God. Anything that you hold as your card-carrying membership into the family of God that doesn't have to do with the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ is your circumcision. 
Whether, again, it's your baptism, your church membership, your attendance, your giving, whatever it may be, it is your circumcision. And as a result of that, we, just like Romans chapter 2, elevate a religious rite or a religious ritual to something that is elevated to a place of taking care of our sins. So what are some of these things that we've talked about? Maybe it's your family's spiritual pedigree. Maybe it's, um, again, uh, membership, communion, the ordinances. Whatever it may be, Paul is talking to you. Now, notice in the text, it doesn't say that these things have no value. It says circumcision has value. But what's the value of something like circumcision? Well, when Paul speaks in the original Greek, when he shares in our NIV translation the word value, it's the Greek word ophelo, ophelo. And what that uh, means is that it is profitable, but it is found in passive voice, which means that it is of a passive help. It is passively productive for a certain thing. And what it literally means is that while it is helpful, it is always pointing to something else. It's pointing to something else that in and of itself, it is not uh, the end result. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, let's see here. Rich Wood, um, give me, show me your left hand. Okay, uh, you're, you're married, right? Uh, does the embodiment of your uh, marriage to Laura uh, all fall on that ring that's on your finger? If I was to say, why are you married to Laura? Would you say it's because I've got this ring on my finger? If I was to ask you about the love relationship that you have with Laura, would you point to your ring? If I was to ask you the question, what is the reminder of your covenant relationship with Laura, what would you point to? My ring. Not my ring, your ring. Okay? We're not that kind of church. Okay? What is circumcision? It's just like the ring that many of us wear when we're in a marital relationship. Is it the end all? No. If I was to take this off and I was to lose it, okay? Do I cease to be married to Amanda? No, I just got a mad wife on my hands. Okay? It's a reminder. We talk about this. I've married many people on this stage, and I tell them it's made of precious metals, which talks about the preciousness of the love relationship that's being uh, that's taking place between a husband and wife. It's got, the, uh, the, of course, the shape of a circle, which speaks of unending love, all those wonderful flowery things. What is it really? It is a sign of something greater. This ring, I, I kid you not, probably cost me about $100. I can assure you my marriage love, my love relationship with Amanda is worth more than a million of these rings. It's a sign. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, oh. You know, the sad part is Amanda's teaching children's worship today. So, so you know, go and tell her, wow, Tim was really talking you up this morning. She won't believe you anyway. So, But it's worth more than that. Circumcision has value. Your ring has value. Why? It is a reminder of the covenant relationship that you have. It should remind you. Every time I look down to my hand, I'm reminded I am in a relationship, a lifelong relationship with a woman named Amanda Bedal. Likewise, when the people of Israel were to look uh, at uh, uh, the area of their body, which remained nameless, they would be reminded of the mark that God had on their life. 
It's a reminder of a commitment, but it goes beyond that because let's look at our first point. We're going to fly through these three points this morning. The first thing that we need to understand is that circumcision reminds us of the reality of sin. It reminds us of the reality of sin. Now, I would also contend this morning, if you were to look at your ring, one thing you should also be reminded of as a married individual is not that you're just married, but it would remind you of the time that you weren't married. That because, here's the thing, it's not just me, the groom that wears the ring. Who else wears a ring that's symbolizing our love relationship? Amanda. And so there's two of us being reminded that we are no longer single, we are no longer our own individuals, but we now have entered into a covenant relationship. It reminds us of our past. For the Jewish individual, it wasn't just their covenant relationship with God, saying, now that I've uh, taken care of this ritual, now I'm right with God. It wasn't just to say, now God likes me. But it was a reminder of something, and that is the reality of their sin. I like what John MacArthur says in his commentary on this passage. He says, the symbolism of circumcision has to do with the need to cut away sin and be cleansed. It was the male organ which most clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. The cleansing of this physical organ was to take place as not to pass on disease. It was to be a picture of the deep need of cleansing from depravity, which is the most clearly revealed by procreation as men produce, as sinful men produce sinners and only sinners. So circumcision points to the fact that the cleansing is needed at the very core of the human being. A cleansing God offers to the faithful and the penitent through the sacrifice of Christ that was to come. The Israelite people had elevated this idea that all the benefits were all the good things. But circumcision reminds us of something. It reminds us of our life before Christ before our relationship with God, where Israel was sinful, disobedient, pursuing all of their gods. And God pulled a man named Abraham and made him a covenant people. And what happens? He says, I'm going to mark them. I'm going to take care of them. And yet they make circumcision their uh, ritual, their religion. And they forgot about the reality of sin. Here's the problem. One of the first things that we do in, in even our culture today is we will come to church and we'll be a part of worship and we'll do all the different things. We'll take communion. We'll even get baptized. We'll go to church and we'll do our devotions and we'll elevate all these things. And the problem is if it doesn't make us recognize who we were without that religion, who we are within that religion, then all of that is worthless. Every practice, every discipline, everything that you do, every little jewel that you put on your bar of Christianity must point you back to the need of you being a sinner in need, uh, in, uh, being a sinner in need of grace. And if you don't recognize that, then all that you're doing is window dressing yourself to look good for your friends and your neighbors. But when you get to heaven, it will be of no value. What is religion? Religion is a bunch of activities. What is ritual? It's elevating something of some sacredness to a place of pursuing it to have some good come out of it. 
that in the end comes none of that. Your attendance today doesn't save you. The prayer you prayed a long time ago, if there is no obedience that comes from that, won't save you. The giving that you give in the offering plate won't save you. Because just like the law, circumcision points back to your need for Christ. That you need to be in a covenant relationship with God. It's like a coin. On one side of the coin, it reminds you of your sinfulness. You flip the coin and it reminds you of your covenant relationship with God. But they had mixed it up and they said it's all about all the good things that come. We forgot about who we are. Now notice what happens in the text. It says a uh, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. Here's the thing. Circumcision has value. Yes, it points to things. It points to the law. It points to uh, the life that we have in regards to the covenant people of God. Okay, as a Jewish individual, I understand that. But if you're relying on that to save you from your sins, you better keep the whole law. Because circumcision is one chapter in a very big book of all the do's and don'ts that you are supposed to do if you are trying to keep the law. Now, here's the problem. In Romans chapter 2, the beginning part, Paul says you can't keep the law. Nobody can keep the law. The Bible tells us later in the same argument in Romans 3, Paul says we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. So if you're sticking your life and sticking your life and your destiny on one of the rituals of that entire law, that's fine. And that's a value if you can make sure that you don't break any other ones. But the problem the Bible says is we can keep the whole law and break just one. We're um, uh, condemned as of a person who has broken all of them. The book of James tells us that. If we fall in one area... We're condemned for breaking all of it. Paul says this. He says, you're a lawbreaker. And what does it do? It nullifies your circumcision. It nullifies uh, the ritual that you've been a part of. Let me explain that for you. There are many people uh, today who uh, attend uh, Roman Catholic Church. And when they attend Roman Catholic Church, one of the struggles that, of course, we have as Protestants, we are protesters of the Roman Catholic Church through the time of the Reformation, Of course, we struggle with their sacramental way of looking at things. Seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic doctrine. And these seven sacraments are means of grace by which you get to God. And if you do these things, then you will be in right standing with God. I always thought it was kind of odd because no one in the Roman Catholic Church can accomplish all seven of them. Because one of them has to do with marriage. The other one has to do with holy orders, which means being a priest. If you know something about the Roman Catholic Church, a priest can't get married and married people can't be priests. So the sacramental system is a bit flawed in the Roman Catholic Church. But what they say is, is if you do penance, if you're confirmed, if you are baptized, if you take the communion, the mass, then you will have a right relationship with God. And if you do all these things and keep doing them, then you will stand before God, not condemned, but you will stand before God and he will say, you've done all that I need to, you to do. But here's the problem. What many of our Catholic friends do is because it's a ritual, they go in and they take communion every week. They're commanded to do that. That's one way to get everybody into church on Sunday. You die in the next seven days and haven't taken communion, it's a mortal sin. 
It's going to get you back to church on Sunday, isn't it? I got to take communion. So what happens? They go and they take communion. I'll tell you, I've catered for many, many Catholic churches. And I have watched people who have just taken communion live like sinners out the door. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if you think a ritual is going to save you and then you go break the law, whatever you just did in church means nothing. Now you say, Tim, you're being hard on the Catholics. Let me be hard on the evangelicals. You think reading the Bible and doing your devotions and going to church and being involved in ministry, all these things, you're going to stand before God with your big box of things and say, hey, look, God, look at all the things I've done. And you live contrary to it. All that you've done, you've wasted your time. If you're not serious about it, that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. By no means. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. But if you think that all I have to do is just keep pouring in, like kind of like a 401, spiritual 401k, I'll just keep pouring into it. So at the end of the day, I got enough in savings that will get me into heaven. If that's what you're doing, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy because in the end, it's done for nothing. None of your religion is going to save you. Well, how do we know that? He talks about the reality of sin, that we're lawbreakers. It doesn't matter then. Number two, we see the righteousness of non-religious and ritualistic saints. Look at verses 26 and 27. He goes on and he says, If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, obey them, will they not be regarded as those as, as though they were circumcised. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code in circumcision are a lawbreaker. This had to infuriate the Jewish people because what is articulated is, is hey, Jewish individual, just because you're circumcised doesn't mean that you're in. In fact, let's talk about the Gentiles. During that day, you wanted to get, uh, you wanted to have an ethnic slur in the uh, area around Jerusalem. You would call a Gentile a uncircumcised dog. That was an ethnic slur. You're not one of us. Look at what we've got. We've got a mark of God on us. And you're uncircumcised. And because of that, you're less than human. It was an ethnic slur. And yet what Paul says is, all right, let's talk about those uh, uncircumcised dogs for a moment. Let's look at them. He says, if circumcision has value, but if you break the law, then you're a lawbreaker. Then let's flip it for a moment. That means then if a Gentile obeys the law, meaning follows God faithfully, he would be viewed as a true Jew, as a child of God, part of the covenant relationship with God. Even though he is uncircumcised and a non-Jew, he goes on, look at what the text says, and he will condemn the Jewish individual. But notice what the Jew said. He called himself a Jew in verse 17. He relied on the law. He bragged about his relationship with the Lord. He knew the will and approved what is superior because he was instructed by the law. Remember, he's the one who's convinced. The Jewish person is convinced that they're a guide for the blind, a light for the foolish. 
because they carry the embodiment of truth. Paul says, please stick with me in this, Paul says that circumcision doesn't have anything to do with it because if you fall to sin, then any rituals that you do aren't going to save you. It's great if you're a perfect person because it's just one other hoop you can go through. But if the Gentile follows what the Lord has asked of them and they are uncircumcised, God says that's okay. That's not the issue. It's not the thing that I'm worried about. I'm worried about the heart. Remember what it says in the Old Testament uh, when he's speaking of David? God doesn't look at the outside. God doesn't look at what's been done in the name of ritual. He looks to the heart. And he says that you, the Gentile who follows God, is as if he has become circumcised. Now notice what Paul says in verse 27. At the end of verse 27. He says even though you have the written code and circumcision. The idea here is that you look good on the outside. Let me tell you something today. For some of you sitting in this place today, you believe with all your heart that you will be in heaven one day. You believe you are a part of the covenant people of God for whatever reason. But there is a day coming. And and I would even add, you even look down uh, at people that you think aren't as religious as you. And legalism has set in. Well, just like the Gentile in that day, there will be a day that will come where it will not be you who condemns because of your righteousness, but it will be those that you thought weren't as spiritual as you who will condemn you, who will judge you. What are you holding on to today? There's one final thing I want to look at, and that is Paul talks about the redemption made available through our Savior. The reason for this offense that Paul argues is found in verse 28 and 29. Paul then talks about what a Jew is. He says, A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. That that explains a lot. That explains why we as Christians don't follow uh, the ritual, the rite of circumcision. Now, I understand that circumcision is a cultural norm here in America, but it is for, uh, for, it's a debate more and more now these days, but it's for medical things, okay? It's for cleanliness. And it's more of a cultural norm because of medicinal purposes more than anything else. It has nothing to do with religion. And yet, what Paul says is he says, all right, if you want to be a Jew... If you want to be a true Jew, other translations say, then it's not about how you look on the outside, but it's how you look on the inside. That's true for Christianity as well. Christianity isn't how you look on the outside. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus talks with them time and time again, and he says, hey, you look clean on the outside. You're a whitewashed tomb, but there's dead bones on the inside. You're a clean platter. Everything's just perfect, but you're a sinner on the inside. And so what we need to recognize is it has nothing to do with our outward appearance. You may even be able to uh, trick everybody into thinking you are a believer. But notice in verse 16 that on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, you may be able to trick all of us. There will be great preachers who will have tricked people into saying that they were these great followers of Christ. And all it was was just a ritual, a religion that they pursued. And on the day of judgment, the secrets will come out. Why 
Are you doing such things? So this reminds us of some things. Paul says, if he was preaching here today, there are a lot of Jews in our midst. A lot of Jewish people. Oh, not because you are from Israel. Not because you are um, uh, circumcised. You may be of a Gentile nation and of a Gentile heritage, but Paul says it ain't uh, where you live. It's not how you dress. It's not the uh, markings on your body that make you. It's not the outward. It's the inward. It's not the foreskin. It's the heart. In fact, look at verse 28 and 29. It reminds us of what is going to transpire in salvation. No, a man is a Jew in verse 29 if he is one inwardly. And the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, not by the law. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from of God. A couple of things we need to recognize about salvation. Number one, it has nothing to do with your hands. It has nothing to do with your hands. If you think I can do enough good deeds and that will get me to heaven, then you've bought into religion. If you think that you can work in some way, doing some religious activity, that that is going to get you to heaven, you are dead wrong. If you think I just got to go knock on so many doors, if I just I got to give, if I, if I have to do whatever, whatever it is. Because the Bible says it's not because of the righteous works that we have done, but it's according to Christ's mercy that he saved us, Titus 3, 5 tells us. Why does it take his mercy? Because of the uncircumcision of our heart. We are sinners in need of grace. And we can't fix it on our own because the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. If your heart's not right, you could could circumcise yourself and everybody you know a hundred times over and God would say, ah, that's wonderful, but it does nothing in regards to righteousness. You just made a whole bunch of people hurt a whole lot. Nothing else. Next thing has nothing to do with your habits. Has nothing to do with your habits. If your faith walk is filled with your habits. Are disciplines good? Yes, you should read your Bible. You should pray. All those things are good. But if you have built them as your habits, your religious holy habits, and you say at the end of the day that when someone says, how do you know that you are saved and you start relying on those things, you're in trouble. Talk with a Catholic friend. Talk with a friend that's involved in a cult. And if they are unable to articulate I can only rely on the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus. Then they are buying into a religion, not a relationship with Jesus Christ. When I uh, started dating Amanda, she wasn't she wasn't a a, a Christian. And uh, early in our relationship, she was religious. And that was part of my problem is I bought into a religious woman, but not a woman with a relationship with Christ. And I remember asking her the question uh, a couple weeks after we started dating. Uh, a, a phone call had come up that uh, an acquaintance of hers, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of my story here, an acquaintance of hers had passed away. And uh, I asked her, well, you know, how do you know where you're going to go when you die? And you know what Amanda said? I go to church. I've been confirmed. I, I uh, take communion. I even serve communion. Um, I pray the rosary. I pray the Our Father, all these things. And I said, wait a minute. None of that's going to save you. And before the night was done, 
Amanda had given up on ritual and religion and had found eternal life. It's not about your habits. Redemption, write this down, involves the heart. It's not the cutting of a, of a part of your body, the skin, but it's a transplant of the heart. The book of Ezekiel tells us that. Um, Ezekiel chapter, just uh, write this down. Um, you know, I didn't write the chapter that the verse is in. Um, I don't know where it's at. If anybody knows by uh, the place, I've just got the verses in here where it talks about that God is going to do a heart transplant. He's going to take out what? The stony heart. Help me. I got Ezekiel. Come on, Raquel. You got to give me more than that. Dying up here. What does God say through the prophet Ezekiel? You can find it on your own homework for extra credit. What does he say? I'm going to take out your heart of stone. And what am I going to do? Is he just going to cut away some of it? No, he says, I'm going to replace it with a fleshy heart, a heart that can worship me, a heart that can praise me, a heart that can be obedient to me. The relationship that we have, I don't build my relationship with my wife on the rituals or the habits that I do, but I build them on the love relationship. Al, give me the passage. Ezekiel 11:19 that's why he's called the chairman So why does all that take place? Why do we do all the things we do because of relationships? Because of relationships. When I was younger, I used to listen to a group called REM. Still do. And REM has a song that it says, "I'm losing my religion." Now, the song, as I did some study, I thought it was just the perfect song, Losing My Religion, works good for the preacher. Had to do with losing his temper. That's how artists are, you know, they use one word to mean another word. Guy's losing his temper. He's in the corner losing his temper. But I like the title because the title is something we need to rid ourselves from. It is time for us as a people to lose our religion, to get rid of it, to not be the Jew uh, in Romans chapter 2, who says, because of what I've done, now I am saved. Because of what I've done, now I am in right standing with God. Because of what I've done, now I am superior to everybody else. No, my friends, that's religion. And when you get to the judgment day, religion will do nothing but send you to an eternity in hell. So what's the application? Three things very quickly. Number one, stop proving your faith through rituals. Stop trying to prove your faith through rituals. You don't have to be Catholic. You don't have to be Mormon. You don't have to be Jehovah's Witness to have rituals. Protestants have all the rituals as well. We may not put as much emphasis on them as others. But stop trying to prove your faith. It's not because you attend a certain church, follow certain customs. It's because of the heart transplant that has taken place. Number two, start growing in obedience, not observances. You take communion, good. Communion has some value. But if you live like a sinner every rest of the day during the week and you come and take communion, then communion has no value because you are a lawbreaker. And you can try to take your communion up to heaven and say, look, I took communion. Look, look at this. God will say, but I knew, I knew your heart. And you thought you could fix your sin problem because of a little wafer and a little cup of juice. Are you kidding me? I sent my son Jesus to die to take care of that. And you thought you could fix it on your own. So what do we do? Start obeying. 
The Bible, uh, Romans chapter 2 tells us, in fact, notice the words that are used. In uh, verse 25, if you observe the law, but later in the text it talks about, and yet the one who obeys the law. There are some here today, and I tell you with all sincerity in my heart, you're playing a game. You're being a hypocrite because you're observing the Christian faith but you're not obeying it. And you may think that, hey, nobody else knows. On the day of judgment, God knows that your observances will not be enough for you. Finally, seek the approval of God, not of man. If you look at someone who is religious, they're religious many times to show others how religious they are. The Pharisees were great at this. Look at me. Look how great we are at that. And yet Paul ends this chapter by reminding us we serve an audience of one. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from, a, but from God. Paul was like Ray. He punned. Now you say, well, I don't see any pun in there. Where is it, Tim? Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. In the original, we see that the name Judah, Jew, where the, where the name Jewish comes from, means praise. And so when a Jewish person would talk about their relationship with God, they would say, even our name means praise. God loves us. He thinks we're awesome. And what does he, uh, Paul say? He says, such a man's praise is not from men. Who cares what people call you? He says, it's from God. You may have tricked everybody in your workplace to think you're a religious individual. And you may be the most religious person in your workplace. But you're not seeking the approval of men. On the day of judgment, they'll be in line with you. We must seek the approval of one. Paul brings an indictment. And he tells us we have no excuse at the beginning of this chapter. And my prayer is, I hope and I pray that we would take a good look at who we are. Not look at others and not try to compare ourselves to where other people are at. But we would look in light of what God has declared in Romans chapter 2 and we would look at who we are. Not from our comparison of others, but God's divine standard. And so maybe today you've come in as we close out this series. You've come in and you've heard this series. And you've heard these set of messages. And you say, Tim, if religion can't save me, if my good deeds can't save me, what can? The answer is simple. Jesus Christ. Because we're all lawbreakers, but there is one who lived and did not break the law. There is one who was tempted but did not sin. There is one who lived and walked among us and yet there was no sin found in him. And as a result of that, now he could have gone and lived a happy life being in the favor of God, but he came that he would be able to die. Why would he die? So that he could save us from our sins. For God so loved the world that he sent his son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I didn't see circumcision in there. I didn't see baptism. I didn't see communion. I saw a faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Give your life to Jesus Christ. We don't do this very often, 
But at the end of this service, we would like to talk with you about it. We don't want to make fanfare out of it because we don't want you to think that there's something in and of itself by you standing up or raising your hand that that saves you. But I'm going to ask a couple of the elders uh, to come down at the end of our service and to be here to explain more of the gospel with you. Because if you leave this place and you think, oh, hey, I just got another belt, another uh, notch in my belt of my religion, you will be sadly mistaken on the day of judgment. What are you holding to this morning? Good works, the church, or the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ because of the cross of Calvary? I'm going to ask Amy to come and uh, get on uh, the uh, uh, piano over here, and uh, we are going to sing a song. I'm going to lead us through a closing song, Bear With My Voice, after speaking as long as I have. But we're just going to close it out with this. So I'd ask that you would stand and sing with me a hymn that reminds us of where we put our hope and our faith. Because everything else is sinking sand. So let's sing together. putting your faith and trust in this morning as the hymn writer says as we'll sing the last chorus here on christ the solid rock i stand if you put your faith and hope in religion or ritual it's all sinking sand give your life to jesus today let's go to the chorus and let's close our service singing out the chorus of this song let's uh, give me the chorus there here we go on Christ the solid rock I stand not a religion, but a redeemer. Father, I'm so thankful that you sent him 
who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, in that is the gospel. We then become your covenant people. It is not about nationality. It is not about what we do, but it is about what you have done for us. Not on the righteous things that we've done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. Lord, if there is one in our midst who is clinging to something else, let them recognize by the working of your Holy Spirit this morning that the ground they stand on is sinking sand. Let us do business with you today, Lord. Let us take away anything that hinders us from that relationship and that relationship alone so that when we stand before you, we will not stand condemned, but we will have the blood of Christ and his righteousness applied to our life that we will stand before you and say, on the solid rock of Christ, we stand. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our motivation in every aspect of our living this week so that you'll be brought glory, honor, and praise. We give you all things. And all God's people said, Amen.